Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to Grace Church, Medina East Campus. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Pastor Seth. I'm the guy who last week in the video gave candy to children. And this week in the video, I sugared them up with sweet drinks. So you're welcome, parents. Right, so again, uh, if you haven't had an opportunity to be introduced with me or uh, all that good stuff, again, my name is Pastor Seth. I, I'm one of the pastors here at Medina East. And guys, I gotta be honest with you, I am really excited uh, to be here with you this morning as we continue uh, in this conversation that we began last week, uh, this series that we have been calling, What's the Difference? And let me just say, as Dan mentioned a few moments ago, if you are a guest here with us today, in other words, if this is your first time being out at Grace Church, checking us out, we do. We say it a lot, but we mean it. It's an honor and a privilege that you would decide to spend this time here together with us this morning. And you're in luck because even though we're in week two of this series, What's the Difference? Last week was very much introductory, so that you, if you still came at a really great weekend. And if you wanna go check out uh, last week's message, you can do so on our podcast. We have an app as well. Well, encourage you to do that. But so we've been in the series now, last week and now this week again, uh, called What's the Difference? And so basically in this series, we have had pretty much one big or one major goal, one thing that we're pursuing here in this series, and it's this that in the series, we want to explore the difference between New Testament Christianity or what we would call the gospel. <clears throat> now that's a big $2 word, right? So the gospel is simple, simply a bible word that means good news. It is the good news about Jesus and the rescue he offers to humanity. So what we wanna do is we wanna explore the difference between the New, the New Testament Christianity, the gospel, and various religious beliefs, various world religions that we find in our day and age here today. And so while that has been kind of like the primary goal of this series, there are a couple of other what we might call subsidiary goals that flow out of that primary goal that are a little bit more posture-based. Uh, in other words, how do we want to go about addressing the difference between New Testament Christianity and other world religions, other belief systems? How do we wanna do that? And so last week we talked about how we wanna hold two things in high regard as we go about this conversation. And that would be this, we want to do this with charity and with clarity. We wanna have this conversation with charity and with clarity. Charity in the sense of we are by no means looking to point a judgmental finger at anybody or stoke up the fires of debate with people that don't share our convictions. That's not the goal. So listen, we here at the Medina East Campus, we believe pretty firmly that Jesus' death and resurrection, the core idea of this word gospel that I just mentioned to you, we believe that that message is for everybody. It's for everybody. And we believe here at the Medina East Campus that if we are followers of Jesus, that we actually exist, we are born again by Jesus ourselves to be the conduit of his blessing and love to you. We believe that pretty firmly. So we wanna operate with charity toward others that don't share our convictions or our beliefs. But in so much as we wanna do that, we also want to provide clarity. In other words, there is in fact a discernible difference between the gospel, between New Testament Christianity and a lot of the belief systems that are floating out there in our world today. There is a difference. And man, to sweep those differences under the rug or like pretend they don't exist, like they're just the boogeyman under the bed at night. I mean, we just think that that would be, first of all, dishonest. It would be dishonest. And fundamentally, we just think that that would be unloving to do that because there is a difference and the difference matters. And so again, in this series, last week, as I mentioned, Pastor Tony walked us through an introduction where he spoke about primarily what is the gospel. 
He looked to define the story of Jesus and the rescue that Jesus offers. And so from here on out, what we're gonna do in the next weeks of this series, starting today, is we are going to explore again the difference between that gospel that we talked about last week and specific world religions or specific belief systems that exist in our world today. So we're gonna get more specific today and we're gonna start this series of the conversation with this. We are gonna explore the difference between the gospel and cults. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. The gospel and cult. So my job is going to be super easy today, isn't it? Just, and without the, any potential for controversy whatsoever. You see, all I have to, all I have to do for you this morning is to present to you all the finer points, the meticulous minutia of all the doctrinal beliefs of every single cult group that has ever existed for the last 2000 years. That's what I have to do. It seems simple enough, doesn't it? Okay. So obviously We do not have time here this morning. We don't have the time or space to comb through all the details of every single cult group or group that has been labeled a cult group uh, that's floating around in our world today. We just don't have time to do that. So I'm actually just gonna propose that we take a little bit of a different course of action in this conversation. See, I believe that there is a really foundational and important question that has to be answered before we would begin to compare and contrast New Testament Christianity with cultic beliefs. One fundamental question needs to be answered first, and it's a question of definition. Before we go anywhere, we have to be fair and charitable. We have to ask the question, what is a cult, right? What exactly is a cult? How do we define that? Now, listen, I know for some of us here today, and if I were in your seat, I would probably be thinking the same thing. You might be thinking, okay, that's fine that we're doing this today, but I don't see how this has like specific or concrete or intense relevance in my life today. I I can't remember, maybe you're saying, I can't remember the last time I have been quizzed on the finer points of cultic belief. Like, I just don't remember that. So, How does this matter to me today? Well, I'll probably say to you that it matters for a couple different reasons, for a couple different big reasons. And the first one is this. If you are a follower of Jesus, it may come as a surprise to you that most of the groups that have been defined as cults in our world today, a vast majority of groups that have been defined as such, actually claim to be thoroughly and decidedly Christian. They claim that Jesus is either the or a central figure in their belief system. So for instance, if you were gonna go out to the official website of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, so that would be the Mormon church, if you were gonna go out to their website and in their search engine on that site, if you were gonna type in the words Jesus Christ into that search engine, this is what you would find. Do you believe in the historical Jesus Christ who lived and taught in the Holy Land as recorded in the Bible? Yes. We believe Jesus was born of Mary, preached in the Holy Land during a ministry of about three years, died on the cross, was resurrected from the dead, just as prophets had foretold for centuries before his coming. And notice as examples, they give passages from the Old Testament in the Bible. Say, we believe that he suffered and atoned for the sins of all mankind making repentance and forgiveness possible. We believe that he overcame death and that through his power, every man and woman might or may be resurrected with physical bodies. And then the New Testament is quoted, the New Testament of the Bible. 
And I just gotta tell you, my next statement here is not intended to be braggadocious or arrogant. By the way, I haven't used the word braggadocious in like a decade, it just appeared, so you're welcome. I don't know, but I don't mean to be arrogant saying this, but I went to Bible school, okay? I got my undergrad in biblical studies. It took me seven years, so I took the long route, but uh, I got my undergrad in biblical studies, I got my Master of Arts in Biblical and Theological Studies, whatever. But what I was taught there thoroughly, when I look at this, and this seems pretty legit. As a matter of fact, if you were gonna look at about the first 300 years of church history, where people didn't, the literacy rate was pretty low, so the way the church would teach core teaching about Jesus and about God and about the stuff that's in the Bible, they would do that through the creeds And if you ever look at the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Constantinopolitan Creed, you you don't have to spell it, it's fine. But if you were to look at those creeds, it looks pretty much the same. So then that begs the question, doesn't it? Is there a difference between the gospel and what Mormonism is or purporting to say? Like, should we just, if we're a follower of Jesus, should we just extend our hands to the Mormons, shake their hands because we're saying the same thing? Or is there actually a difference? And if there is a difference... What does that look like? What does that entail? And that's a major reason for wanting to enter into this conversation, but there's another one that's far more practical than that. And it's summarized in this one lovely phrase that all of us know, door-to-door evangelism. (laughs) Door-to-door evangelism, right? So let me just tell you, whether you like it or not, followers of cults are coming to you. They're coming to your door, right? And often, more often than not, when you least expect it. And so we have a couple options, don't we, when that happens. The first option could be doing what we do on Halloween when we forgot to buy candy for the trick-or-treaters. We could shut the door, lock it, turn off all the lights, look like nobody's lived there for the last 30 years, right? Turn off all the lights, pull over the curtains, right? Tell our kids to shut their dirty little mouths for five seconds so they don't hear us peek out the curtains just to see if they're coming up the walk. Dun it, dun it. It's like Jaws or something. Dun it, dun it. You know, we could continue to do some of those evasive maneuvers or we have the better option, I believe. We could actually lovingly, respectfully embrace and engage those in our communities, whether they're walking around the community doing their evangelism whether they're neighbors, whether they're friends, whether they're coworkers, whether they are for many of you and for me too, family, maybe we could do the more loving thing, embrace them, hear them out, but do the clarifying thing and explain the difference. Why? Not because we don't like them, precisely because we love them. So you get my point, right? I think, for starters, Man, we need a solid working definition of what a cult is if we're gonna enter into this conversation and explore the difference. Now, in my preparation and study for this weekend, um, I looked at a lot of different definitions for cults. And truth be told, there's a ton of different, like varying definitions that are out there. And some are a little bit more sensationalized, right? A little bit more emotionally driven. Some are more sociological. They look at how cult leaders interact with followers of the cult. Others are more theologically based, meaning they look at the beliefs and practices of cult followers and their leaders. So a lot of different definitions. And I gotta tell you, um, 
the definition that I found that was the most helpful to me, that was the most clarifying for me, was given by um, a lady named Dr. Ruth Tucker. Now, Dr. Tucker is a missiologist and a comparative religions expert, and she wrote this great book, and I would recommend it to you if you're looking to dig into a little bit more detail, because again, in our conversation today, we're just gonna kind of skim the surface. We're gonna go high level, but if you're looking for a little bit more detail, this book right here, I can't recommend it to you enough. It's called Another Gospel, and in this book, basically what Dr. Tucker does is after a first introductory chapter, Each subsequent chapter looks at a different religious or cult group that exists in our world today and helps unpack the origins, uh, the history, the belief systems, and the practices of these various groups. And she helps to show how the gospel is different. So tremendously helpful. But in the introductory chapter, Dr. Tucker offers what I think is one of the most helpful definitions for what a cult is. This is what she says. She says, a cult is a religious group that has a prophet founder called of God to give a special message not found in the Bible itself. Often apocalyptic in nature, just pause there real quick, what she means by apocalyptic in nature, think like end times, end of the space-time universe, when everything gets folded up. Often apocalyptic in nature, so these special messages are often talking about the future, often apocalyptic in nature, and often set forth in inspired writings. And I I really do believe that this is a super helpful definition. And along with this definition and some of the other things that Dr. Tucker explains in that introductory chapter to her book, Another Gospel, she begins to uproot what she would call three core features or three common denominators that tend to be true about nearly any cult group that you would ever come in contact with today. Now, she goes out of her way to do this. I wanna go out of my way to do this. We are not looking to stereotype. We are not claiming that these common denominators exist in every single cult cult group. But by and large, she has done the homework and she's done the research. And these three common denominators tend to surface in nearly any cult group that you would come in contact with that fits a definition like this. And the common denominators have to do with additives, something additional, meaning the gospel is preached in the New Testament by Jesus and his apostles plus something additional. And she says there are three. First, she says there, are, there is an additional, it tends to be an additional leader. In other words, cult ex, cults exalt some hu, other human figure in addition to Jesus. And so this prophetic figure or this prophet-like figure is often given some kind of new revelation that was not given from Jesus himself or from his apostles. So in other words, God has, in many cult groups, given this additional leader new information that we didn't get in Jesus and that we don't get in the Bible. It's new information that tends to be required if one wants to enter into the blessed life that God has to offer. And you can see, as you move on to the next one here, how each of these three things begin to interlock a little bit. So the tendency is when you have an additional leader that you also have soon afterward an additional authority. In other words, the new teachings of that new leader, that new revelation is often codified into additional writings or what we might call an additional inspired text, which claim to be authoritative for the belief and practice of the group's adherence. And again, you can see how these interlock. It tends to be when you have an additional leader, you'll wind up getting additional authority 
And that additional authority will deliver to you some kind of additional code of conduct. In other words, the new revelation of the prophet, the new authority from the quote-unquote inspired text produces now a new demand on its followers. A new demand, new rules, new regulations, new requirements. So we can tend to see these in our day and age as it pertains to groups that might be classified or considered as a cult. There's something about additions, stuff being tacked on to the message of Jesus that really is helpful and clarifying. Now, for some of us, we look around the landscape today, and I think I was, I was this way too before I kind of started digging into this. We look around the landscape today and we think, man, in the last 200 years, there's been kind of like a rash of cult groups that have come up. It seems like there was some seed of cult groups that, that was planted and all of a sudden it has flowered into this forest of different religious beliefs and opinions of all kinds. And so we might be led to think that this is some kind of new phenomenon that only in the last several hundred years or in our generation have these additional leaders, additional authorities and additional codes of conduct really popped up. But actually, I'm here to tell you today that we are not the first generation in human history to experience the temptation to drift into some of these additives. We're not the first generation in human history. As a matter of fact, if you go back and you read many of the letters that are written by Jesus' apostles in the New Testament, especially those that were written by this guy Paul, the Apostle Paul, when you read his letters, you quickly discover that this is nothing new. What we're seeing here is nothing new. And that when Paul writes letters in the New Testament, he doesn't write, he doesn't seek or set out to write abstract theological treatises. He doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, every letter that he writes in the New Testament is directed to a specific group of Christ followers, a specific church in a specific region in the first century that is being tempted or persuaded to add certain characteristics and qualities and features to the gospel that Paul preached to them. And so here's what I wanna do today. I actually wanna go, now that we've kind of dealt a little bit with defining cults, I wanna now go back and show how this was at play when Paul was writing to a church or to churches in the region of Galatia in the first century. And I think we're gonna see here that even as he's combating some of these things, we also get a profound definition of the gospel that he preached that is different than what we see here in some of these common denominators. So I wanna invite you, if you brought your Bibles with you this morning, or if you've got that on your phone, tablet, or device, if you wanna uh, get those out right now and follow me to Galatians, the book of Galatians, the letter to Galatians. Galatians chapter one, verses one through nine. Galatians chapter one, verses one through nine. And if you don't have a Bible with you, that's totally fine. We have some Bibles under the seats in front of you there. In those Bibles, you will find Galatians one on page 810 there. And lastly, if you don't have a Bible at all, like you don't own one, we just want you to take one of those Bibles in the seats in front of you. That's yours now. Just take it home with you. Just consider our way of first saying thank you for being here, but also do we just really desire, we really want to get God's word into your hands because we think that's valuable. All right, so Galatians 1, <clears throat> 1 through 9. Here's what Paul begins to say to this Galatian church who is tempted to begin to add things to the gospel. Opening of the letter, he says, Paul, I'm Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. 
and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm gonna pause here for a moment. So last week, as I mentioned, uh, Pastor Tony walked us through kind of an introductory week of this series, and he looked at this very same passage as he sought to define for us the gospel that Paul preached. And I think Tony did a masterful job of showing us how the fact that Paul references the gospel or he grounds himself on the foundation of the gospel for every argument that he makes throughout the letter to the Galatians, then when he grounds himself on this, we might ask the question, well, Paul, what is exactly, do you have a succinct, like portable statement of what the gospel is, like the gospel that you preach? And actually, Pastor Tony did a masterful job last week of showing us how this gospel is given to the Galatian church right off the bat as Paul opens this letter. And you can find that in verse four, that Jesus Christ, the central figure of faith is the one who gives himself or who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. And so Pastor Tony talked about how you can see right here in verse four, there's some key ingredients to the gospel that Paul preached. First of all, we see that every single human being that was born and that is born and that will be born throughout human history, Paul says, is mired in this thing called sin that Jesus gave himself for. And this idea of sin as taught throughout scripture, and Paul teaches this very repeatedly in his writings, this idea of sin is kind of like a spiritual disease that separates us from God. Sin is the, not only the things that we do, but a disease within us that creates a breach of the, relate, the kind of relationship that God desired to have with every single human being, that sin destroys this relationship. And we find ourselves, as Paul will say elsewhere, dead in our trespasses and our sins. But Tony pointed out that, man, in this succinct statement, we not only have an exposition of the reality of sin in the world, that we're messed up, we also have God's grace implicit in this. That Jesus Christ is the son that the father sends and Jesus Christ gives of himself. What Paul refers to here is not, not less than Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of humanity. In other words, Jesus's death on the cross is not just some revolutionary getting punished by Roman authorities. Jesus's death on the cross is literally Jesus taking on the consequences of that sin and rebellion that exists, taking that on himself, absorbing that, being substituted in our place, dying in our place so that human beings who believe and trust in him might go free and be free from sin and death, might be put back into right relationship with God. And we see that in this compact, portable expression of Paul's gospel, we see the three ingredients that if you've been around the Medina East Campus for any degree of time, you know what I'm about to say. That the gospel for Paul, according to Galatians 1.4, is this. It's radical sin. That again, Paul will say in Ephesians that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in the manner of life in which we once walked. We were enslaved to death and to Satan. But yet, in the midst of our sin, God still chose to be radically generous and gracious toward us by sending Christ to die for us. 
that God is radically gracious. And I love in that same passage in Ephesians where it talks about how we're dead in our trespasses and sins, it has this beautiful way of saying God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, this God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So Paul says there's radical sin. What overwhelms the depths of sin is God's radical grace. And this leads us into radical love. Radical love in two ways. Number one, the more we follow Jesus, the more we discover the depths and the riches and the goodness of God's love for us. And also, the more we follow Jesus, the more we discover that that same love that existed in Jesus for us begins to be developed in us so that we as human beings might be able to love other people in the same way that we might be able to love radically. So the gospel, according to Paul, is radical sin, radical grace, radical love. And you could see that in the opening of Galatians here. But for as much as you can see that here in Galatians, I'm smiling now, this is great. As much as you can see that in Galatians, there is also another, I believe, powerful, provocative declaration of the gospel that Paul preached that exists in these first several verses. And if we're not careful, we might just easily breeze over it and we might easily miss it because it's actually found in one single word that is found in this opening. And that is this word that Paul uses to describe Jesus, this word, Lord, this word, Lord. Now, for some of us, again, this, we could just easily blow right past this. I've done this. I can't tell you how many times I've either read Galatians or another book where Paul calls Jesus Lord. I just blow by it because we can easily do that. We can look at, well, maybe Lord, we think sometimes is just a synonym for the name of Jesus, right? So in other words, if I want to pray to Jesus to help him heal my bunion, like Jesus, please heal my bunion. Like I could just sub out the word Lord for Jesus and say, Lord, we heal my bunion, right? You could do that. Uh, for some of us, it's a synonym issue. For others of us, we might just think, well, we'll blow, we'll blow right past it because maybe this was just an honorific title that Paul was giving to Jesus. Maybe it's a little like a tip of the cap gesture to Jesus. Maybe the equivalent of like a sir in our modern day English. But let me just tell you, what Paul is doing here, there is a powerful dimension to understanding the gospel that shows up here when Paul calls Jesus Lord. Now listen, if you were a Jewish person who was living in first century Rome, like Paul was, okay? If you were a Jewish person living in first century Rome, which by the way, if you're living in first century Rome, the Lord of the world is a guy named Caesar, okay? And oh, by the way, anytime a new Caesar would ascend to power, the word you would use for him taking his seat on the throne with all power and authority and lordship, the word you would use? is gospel. It's the good news of the new Caesar. There's a new Lord. There's a new game in town that promises peace and prosperity and goodness for all. So Paul, if you were a Jew living in the first century in Rome, you know that. If you were a Jew in the first century in Rome and you were also thoroughly versed in the Old Testament writings and God's plan of salvation that he inaugurated and initiated in those pages, Man, you would know if you were sitting in that environment, 
you would know that this word Lord is the furthest thing from a throwaway title. And while we don't have time to go into why that exists, because it's everywhere throughout the Bible, how this term Lord matters to our understanding of Jesus and how it matters to our understanding of the gospel Paul preached. We don't have time to go into all the different passages. It's amazing. I would encourage you to do your own study. As a matter of fact, if you were just to look in the New Testament, the word Lord is ascribed to Jesus, get this, over 700 times. This is not a throwaway. So while we don't have time to like unpack all those 700 occurrences, I'm gonna lean a little bit on our friends on a statement that our friends at the Gospel Coalition have made. If you don't know what the Gospel Coalition is, it's phenomenal. It is a website. It is a group of pastors, scholars, and theologians. Their entire goal with this website is to help us understand what's in our Bible and to help us understand what we should believe as followers of Jesus in light of what is in our Bible. But here is what one of the authors at the Gospel Coalition said about the idea of gospel and the significance of the term Lord that appears here in Galatians chapter one. The gospel message, Trevin Wax says, great name by the way, the gospel message is a message, now listen, listen, about Jesus, about Jesus. In other words, fundamentally, the gospel is not about me, It's not just good news because I think it is. It's not about you. It's not about Paul. It's not about anyone. The gospel proclamation, what you preach, what you declare in the good news is about Jesus. And because it is about Jesus, this means that it is for us. That the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who was given up for our sins to rescue us from sin, death, and Satan, from the present evil age. The gospel, as defined carefully in the New Testament, is not primarily about how an individual gets saved. The gospel is a specific announcement about the crucified and risen Christ that then brings salvation to individual sinners. Now, please don't miss this last statement. This is, this is huge. If Jesus is not preached as the crucified and risen, what? Say it. Lord. If Jesus is not preached as the crucified and risen Lord of the world in a gospel presentation, then the presentation ceases to be gospel. Just read the book of Acts. Anytime someone proclaims the gospel or preaches a sermon, you know that this is true. Let me read this again. Don't miss it. If Jesus is not preached as the crucified and risen Lord of the world in a gospel presentation, then that presentation ceases to be gospel. Now, what I want us to do is take this, apply it to Galatians 1.3, assigning the title of Jesus as Lord at the beginning of the letter where the gospel matters is not a throwaway. Paul is steeped in the biblical storyline. He's making a powerful declaration about who Jesus is and what the gospel is. You see, by assigning the title Lord to Jesus, Paul asserts that Jesus is the rightful ruler over all creation. The universe, Jesus is in charge whether you like it or not. He is, 
And by virtue of his death and his resurrection and his ascension, which is a term that's used to refer to a king being planted on the throne over a kingdom, by virtue of his death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus is now the reigning Lord over the whole world, and he is in the process of taking everything, everything that is broken within God's creation, and he is with all his power and authority putting it right again. Man, the gospel is not just about how I get saved. The gospel for Paul is this. Jesus is Lord, period. Jesus is Lord, period. End of story. And that is true right here, right now. Jesus is reigning as Lord over all. And because Jesus has defeated his enemies, Satan, sin, and death at the cross and in his resurrection, he simultaneously now liberates those who were once held captive to those things. Now we get to be a part of team Jesus as he exercises his good rule over the rest of creation. Jesus' kingdom advances through his followers and his followers are those, according to Romans 10, 9, that confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. Man, this, guys, is the foundation from which Paul then begins his work of showing the Galatians or how the Galatians have been persuaded to buy into a counterfeit version of this objective declaration. So you look at verse six, verses six through nine. Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. You're turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and you're, they're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than that one, other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Now notice here, in light of the Jesus is Lord gospel, Jesus is Lord period gospel, Notice here the, some of the terminology that Paul uses to describe the kind of gospel that the Galatian church is being persuaded to buy into. He says it's different. He says this gospel is perverted or is a perversion of the real deal Jesus is Lord period gospel. And it's also other than the one that he preached to them. Now I would love because I am like the king of the word nerds like, I live on edamonline.com because I love etymology. So look it up. It's great. It's great. But I love words. So I would love to spend the next 45 minutes looking at each of these words individually and how they support Paul's argument. I would love to do that, but we don't have time. But let me just tell you, it's not even necessarily the specifics of defining each of these words that matter. In this particular context, it's the way that Paul is bringing together and assembling these terms and the way he's kind of stacking them one on top of another to present to us a powerful metaphor about the danger that's presented to the Galatian churches. So there's this kind of metaphor as he assembled these, assembles these together. You're supposed to get this idea of something being so excessively manipulated 
that it eventually ceases to be the thing you originally had altogether. So something that has been like so mutated and manipulated that it actually begins to be another species entirely. Okay, so let me give you a little, little example of how this might work or, or maybe an illustration. So I don't know if you heard about this. Uh, it was news to me this last week, but apparently about 20 years ago, and this thing lasted for about 10 or 15 years, apparently about 20 years ago, there was like this uproar, this thing went viral, uh, that accused, there was a whole group of people that accused Kentucky Fried Chicken of not serving their customers actual chicken. I'm not kidding you, this is great. Like, thanks Colonel, appreciate that. You know, give me a wing and a thigh. But there, the, the, argue was like, the argument was like, no, it's not chicken not actually chicken. And so it went so far, and some of the proponents of this viral theory went so far as to say that Kentucky Fried Chicken changed their name to KFC because they were legally forbidden to call what they were serving their customers chicken because it wasn't even chicken anymore. Now, this was proven to be false, and actually KFC spent millions of dollars to try to put this thing to bed. But what, what, I, what I think is great is when you hear about this, I actually was able to find the, one of the original emails that sparked the fire on this one. So check this out. This, this email is great. Subject of the email, boycott KFC. The body of the email said something like this. KFC has been a part of our American traditions for many years. Do people, do they really know what they're eating? <clears throat> KFC does not use real chickens. They actually use genetically manipulated chickens, genetically manipulated organisms. These so-called, air quotes, right, chickens, are kept alive by tubes inserted into their bodies to pump blood and nutrients throughout their structure. They have no beaks, no feathers, no feet. Their bone structure is dramatically shrunk to get more meat out of them. After a while, this got so bad that there were photos surfacing online of the alleged chickens. This is one of them. Ugh, like, yeah. I'll have a wing and a thigh, Colonel. But please don't let it be that guy, right? Like, look at this. Almost looks like half goat, right? And I don't know if those are wings or not, but I certainly don't want to eat any part of that. I want, I want no part of that chicken. But you get the point. Do you see what Paul is trying to say as he's assembling some of, these, some of this terminology in Galatians 1? You get the point. Here's Paul's point. Don't eat Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> no, what Paul's point is, he says that if you have a genetically modified gospel, what you actually have is not the gospel. If it's Jesus is Lord plus anything else, you don't have anything. Jesus is Lord, period. Right? This is what Paul is trying to communicate. If you have anything else, it's different. It's perverted. It's other. It's not the gospel. It's Jesus is Lord plus human effort equals salvation. It's a genetically modified beast of a thing that Paul will say later in Galatians will devour the very freedom that Christ died to purchase for you. And what, what I find fascinating is in Galatians 1, each of the three additives, each of the three common denominators that tend to show up in many cult groups today shows up in Galatians. There's an additional leader. 
Paul will refer to them cryptically, but in two, four through five, he'll say they're false believers, these false teachers. And they interlock, right? These false teachers were adding an additional authority. You have to meticulously keep the 613 commandments of the Mosaic law. It's Jesus is Lord plus Moses. Jesus is Lord plus observance of those commandments. Jesus is Lord plus an additional code of conduct. Jesus is Lord plus Jewish religious practices. Jesus is Lord plus Sabbath observance, making sure that you rest on the right day of the week. Jesus is Lord plus the food laws. In other words, Jesus is Lord plus what you can eat and what you can't eat, as well as who you can eat with and who you can't eat with. And Paul is saying, man, Galatians, don't be persuaded The gospel is Jesus is Lord, period. Don't go after the genetically modified, manipulated, perverted other gospel with all this stuff attached to it. Because Paul says that Jesus plus any human striving and works in order to enter into life and relationship with God is not the gospel at all. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul will have plenty to say about the importance and the role of human works once someone has come to Christ. Later in Galatians, he will begin to talk about, in chapter five, the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, for a person that follows Jesus, there is going to be things, there are gonna be things that begin to materialize and emerge in their lives, like God prepared beforehand that we would actually work and that our labor would make a difference in his world. But Paul says, man, if it's Jesus plus your human striving and effort in order to come into a right relationship with God, in order to be saved, Paul says unequivocally, no. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. Because Jesus is enough. Paul is saying that you know you've encountered a no gospel when the supremacy and lordship of Jesus Christ is erased and if anything else is added to it. And again, we come back to the beginning of our conversation. If this is happening 2,000 years ago, if that's the tendency, it certainly happens today. In some of the groups that have been classified by our definition and others as cult groups. Now, listen to me. If you are a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, a Christian scientist, This is not meant to point the finger. This is only to illuminate what we should already know if we're really listening to the message of Galatians. And I would even say that if you're a Christ follower in the room, this is not the place where you take a chart like this and use it to point a wagging judgmental finger at those in your life who may subscribe to some of these things. We're not gonna have time to go into the details, but this is just to show you what we should already know to be true. Because we wanna be respectful, we we wanna act charitably, but we also wanna be clear that it's the difference, that Jesus plus anything, you actually have, you have nothing. You don't have the gospel that Paul preached. All right, as we close things down here, I just actually want to direct uh, this next part of the conversation to followers of Jesus that are in the room, okay? So if you claim to follow Jesus, I just want to plead and implore you to not use this 
things like this or this conversation as ammunition against people in your life that you know who subscribe to these things. As a matter of fact, Christ wants us to love them. 1 Peter 3.15 says that we are to communicate Christ with gentleness and respect. But I would just wanna caution you if you're a Christ follower in the room because there's a serious temptation to do that. I would wanna caution you that before you do any of that, that you shine the spotlight of God's truth on your own heart. Now, I've done the best I possibly can to allow this in my own life, so please, with all the humility that I can offer you, I just wanna caution you because I believe that every single one of us has cult-like tendencies in these areas. We all have a proclivity to take the Jesus is Lord period gospel and tack on some additive or preservative to it, to complete it. Such that if we were gonna add another column to our chart here, what we might call gen mod Christianity, what would we find? How many of us, and myself included, how many of us have thought something like this? If we've not said it, we've thought it, and it's like kicked around the echo chambers of our mind. I've been there like, oh yeah, it's good. Seth, what you're saying is good. But you don't really get me like John MacArthur does. Man, when John MacArthur preaches the word, that guy gets it. I can really get him. You know, other people, eh, kind of, not really, but man, John. John MacArthur. Or how about Stephen Furtick or guys like Tim Keller? Or how about even for some of us, me included, our own campus pastor, Tony Lavigny? And by the way, I did check with Tony on that. So there's, he was totally good with it. As a matter of fact, this is your campus pastor. He's like, I want my name on the board. Why? Because he doesn't want to be a stumbling block or perceived as an addition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or how about this? How many of us were like, yeah, the Bible's hard to understand. It's tough. I know I should really, really go after it, but I don't have the time. And I know I should get equipped to better understand it because it's God's word. I know I should take an equipping division class, shameless plug. I know I should take an equipping division class because that's there to help me with that. But I'll tell you what, why do I need to read the Bible when everything I would ever need to know that's in the Bible is given to me by the purpose-driven life? I'll just read that. Rick Warren says it a little bit better anyway. Apostle Paul garbage. How how many of us have said that about the purpose-driven life or the shack or whatever commentary that's written by your favorite author? I'm just telling you right now, I've done this in my mind before. It's disturbing. And Paul's saying, that's perverted, man. How about this? Additional code of conduct. How many of us have said, I know I've said it, man, if the band does not do a slow song after the prayer, after the message and a weekend service at Medina East, that's just not worship. Or here's what you really need to ensure that you have in a weekend service if it's really gonna be God honoring. Now we're just reducing ourselves to some additional, frankly, preferences because it's not the gospel. It's something that we're tacking Now listen, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, I do not say any of this to guilt trip you. I'm right there with you. We're in this together. I don't intend to point my finger at you and say that you're somehow worse off than me or anyone else. I'm just saying, this is a tendency within all of us. And listen, all of, most of the things, right, in the Gen Mod Christianity column, we could probably determine that they're good things. 
As a matter of fact, they are things that Jesus himself by his Holy Spirit gives to us, gives to his church so that we can be built up in love and so that our time and attention and devotion can be projected right back on to Jesus as the Lord. Guys, pastors, commentaries, weekend services, life groups, equipping division, anything that we would have to offer at Medina East is for that very purpose. We want to use them as tools in the hands of Jesus and his service so that people can be pointed to the reality of the singular focus of the gospel. His lordship, his rule, his reign, his rescue. So finally, for Christ followers and non-Christ followers alike, this is for all of us. If you catch nothing else today, you gotta hear this. The gospel of Jesus is Lord, period, is enough. It's enough. And as the reigning Lord, Jesus extends his death-defeating, Satan-conquering, resurrection power to all. That invitation is to everyone. No works, no striving, no climbing a spiritual ladder to God. It's for everyone. And it is to be received by faith. Me putting the entirety of my life in the hands of the good Lord of the world in total pledge of allegiance to everything that he wants to do in his agenda in the world. That's by faith alone. And in closing, we can think of nothing better than what Paul himself says in Galatians 2.16. He says, we, followers of Jesus, we know, meaning we have a confident conviction. We are certain that this is true. We know that a person is not justified. Justified is a fancy word that simply means being put in right relationship with God. We know that a person is not put in right relationship with God by the works of the law, by additions, by striving, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Man, that is beautiful. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be put in right relationship with God, justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. By the works of the law, no one will be put in right relationship with God. So the bottom line is, it's good news. Jesus is Lord, period. And that is the difference. Let's pray. Jesus, we just confess you right now in this assembly, in this place, that whether we agree with it or not, whether we're feeling it or not, or not, or whatever, wherever we might be, that this is an objective fact, that by virtue of your death and resurrection, you've been ascended to the throne of the world. You're king. You're Lord. You rule and you reign. And Jesus, we want to thank you again for the exposure to the reality of your all-encompassing power, authority, and lordship over all. And Jesus, even further than that, we want to express our thanks and our gratitude for you, the Lord of the world, deciding to come and be like us, to liberate us and to rescue us from the present evil age to liberate us from sin, to pluck us out of our condition so that we could join your team, 
so that as your followers, we could sense the goodness of a relationship with you, sense the goodness of your lordship over our lives, and realize that you are now giving us and filling us with the power of the Holy Spirit to exercise that lordship that is yours exclusively out into the world as we communicate the goodness and the greatness of who you are to all we come in contact with. God, my prayer is that regardless of where we're all at in this room, that you would just reveal to us again the supremacy of who you are, the all-sufficiency of your good work on the cross, and the promise that the gospel is not only something that gets us saved, it is something that helps us continue in this life, and it is what is gonna position us forward in the life to come that you desire for us. Jesus, we just confess, your Lord, you are enough. And we say this in your all-powerful name. Amen.